We're looking at Satan and Satanism, and I believe we're on number seven. But today we're going to look at the nature of Satan's binding. We're going to be looking at Revelation 20, and we're going to be looking at Satan's final doom, the casting of Satan into the lake of fire. But I'm going to read verses 1 to 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having, in his, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he took hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them, that I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness for Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, who had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Okay, so the reign is heavenly and earthly. He's king over the saints in heaven, he's king over the saints on earth. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who takes part in the first resurrection. Over such a second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, <coughs> to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went upon the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven, from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then just verse 14, verse 13, oh, 13 to 14. The sea gave up the dead who are in it, death and Hades, or hell, delivered up the dead who are in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I'm going to go into a little bit of detail on this, just because most people have a totally twisted, wrong version of what this stuff represents because of the error of premillennialism. <clears throat> Although the teaching regarding our Lord's defeat of Satan at the cross and empty tomb is very clear, most evangelicals following a premillennial interpretation of the passage believe that the defeat of Satan does not really occur until the second coming of Christ. Now that's the definitive part where he's cast in the lake of fire, but he's defeated at the cross. Therefore we need to look at the binding of Satan in Revelation chapter 20 to understand its meaning and the proper chronology according to the broader context of Scripture. <clears throat> this is actually very important. I'm going to go into quite a bit of detail to really prove my case because premillennialism is so popular. It's the vast majority of the position of evangelicals in our day. So I have to really demonstrate my position as scriptural from, from the Bible. Before we examine this section of Scripture, there are some introductory matters to consider. First, the reason that a number of commentators view the binding of Satan as occurring at the second coming is their idea that revelation must be interpreted chronologically. But, revelation is a highly symbolic book that recapitulates certain events from a different perspective, and a chronological interpretation of the book is impossible. If you hold to a chronological view of revelation, um, 
you haven't studied the book very carefully because it just you can't hold a chronological view. It is impossible. Note, for example, this is just one example. I could have many, but here's one. According to the premillennial view, Jesus returns in chapter 19 and he destroys the unbelieving nations. Every bit of opposition is crushed by Christ until nothing remains. And here's the concluding verse, verse 21. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Okay, so in 19, it's supposed to be the second coming of Christ. He's on a white horse. A sword comes out of his mouth and everybody's killed on planet Earth of every nation. Then we are told, chapter 20 describes Jesus ruling on earth over the nations for 1,000 years. <clears throat> and this rule is supposed to be a literal earthly rule with our Lord sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. Okay, he's literally on planet earth. He's literally got his headquarters in the earthly Jerusalem. And he's ruling as a kind of worldwide dictator. And of course, being Christ, that would be okay because Christ is sinless and God, and he would rule perfectly. So he controls the civil rulers on earth, the military, and the police forces on planet earth. But, if we take these verses in a chronological order, which is the premillennial view, literal view, physical destruction, not symbolism referring to a spiritual conquest, okay, that's the premillennial matter, the Redeemer would not have any nations over to rule, to rule over in chapter 20. We just read that they were completely obliterated in chapter 19. All of them are killed. All of them are destroyed. Well, who's he going to be ruling over in chapter 20 if the nations were just destroyed? Do you see the problem there? They were completely obliterated even to the last man, verse 21 in chapter 19. So the chronological theory has insurmountable exegetical difficulties. Second, and this is probably, this is very, very important. Premillennialists violate standard biblical procedures of interpretation when they adopt a chronological and literal, somewhat literal, they don't take everything literally, they're, they're arbitrary in the way they apply this. You know, there's a beast with ten heads and seven horns or whatever. They, they don't take that literally. But they, they say, well, we have the literal view. They take a literal view of Revelation 20 for a number of reasons. Number one, and this is critical, and this is what convinced me not to, I used to be premillennial. I was, uh, well, first I was a dispensational premillennialist, then I was a, di then I was a historic premillennialist, then I was an amillennialist, and then I became a postmillennialist. Uh, I have sympathy for the amillennialist position, especially in light of how our world is now. But I can understand that the, I think the Bible teaches a postmillennial view. But anyway, in our Lord's eschatological teachings, he not only says nothing about a future literal millennial reign, not one word, after a second coming, but he contradicts such a view. The wheat and the tares grow together in history and are harvested at the second coming, and then are immediately cast into heaven or hell. Matthew 13, 30, and 40 to 43. That would be a strange thing for Jesus to say if he believed in a future 1,000-year millennium. After his coming. When Jesus explains this parable, he made it clear that it occurs at the end of the age. Matthew 13, 
40. He completely leaves out the idea of a millennium. In Matthew 25, 31 to 41, in Christ's description of the second coming, he places the final judgment of all men, believers and unbelievers, Jews and Gentiles, immediately after his return. Not 1,000 years after his return. The parable of the dragnet. Matthew 13, 47 to 50, and I encourage you to read these passages. Also teaches a general final judgment of all men at the end of this age, the New Covenant era, not after a separate millennium. Okay, we're in the final era of human history. This is the final age. Premillennialists must believe there's another age after this age, the premillennial age. In John 5, 28 to 29, our Lord says that the bodily resurrection of Christians to glorified eternal life and unbelievers to an eternal condemnation of both body and soul, so it's talking about the final resurrection of the dead, occurs at the same time. Not 1,000 years apart. <coughs> Here's what Charles Hodge says from first, this is from First and Second Corinthians. In the evangelists and epistles, the resurrection of the righteous and of the wicked are spoken of as contemporaneous. And since their separation in time is nowhere else revealed, the only proper inference is that they are to occur together. And that's the view of everybody in history until premillennialism came along. Moreover, this teaching, because, you know, the premillennial view, you have to have more than one resurrection. You have to have more than one uh, coming. You have a coming for the rapture. Of course, that's premillennial uh, dispensationalism. And then you have a coming again. So you have to have separate resurrections and separate judgment. It doesn't make any sense. Moreover, this teaching rolls out multiple bodily resurrections. In John 6, 39-40, Jesus teaches that there is only one bodily resurrection of Christians which occurs on the same day, the last day, which is repeated twice in verses 39 and 40. So when is the resurrection of Christians to take place? Jesus says, the last day. That means the end of human history, not uh, at the rapture, then again at the second coming, and then again... If you're premillennial dispensationalist, you have to believe in three resurrections. There's one at the rapture, the secret one, seven years before the tribulation begins, because the parousia, uh, the coming uh, in Thessalonians describes uh, the people who are alive or caught up in the air, but preceding that, there's a resurrection of the dead, of the Christians. So you have to have that, that one, then you have to have another one at the second coming, and then you have to have another one at the end of the millennium. You have to have three resurrections. It doesn't make any sense, right? Because there's people that are alive during the millennium that live and die. Well, how are they going to get their glorified bodies without a resurrection? So that you have to believe in three separate resurrections. But Jesus said there's one resurrection, and it happens on what? The last day. Are there any other days besides after the last day, as far as human history is concerned? And the answer is no. The last day is the day of the second coming and final judgment. This day leads immediately into the final state, not a separate millennium. For obviously there can be no other days after the last day. 
And then Paul is exceptionally clear. Jesus is clear, but Paul is really clear. The Apostle Paul teaches that on the day that Jesus returns, the second coming, the following events will occur. Okay, pay close attention. You can look up these passages later because they're not difficult passages. Number one, the physical bodies of all the dead saints who ever lived will be raised from the dead. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 Then, the saints who are still alive on earth will be raptured to meet the descending Christ, the descending Savior, in the air. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 And this is the famous proof text for the rapture. So Christ, it says Christ returns. Immediately, the, the dead Christians all come out of their graves. Then, coterminous, the living saints meet Christ too. So the dead saints and the living saints all meet Christ. Everyone in all human history believed in the Messiah will receive glorified bodies that are spiritual, perfect, and cannot sin or die. 1 Corinthians 15, 38-56. The implication of these biblical facts is that there are no Christians with mortal bodies who can get married and bear children in the supposed future millennium. Think about it. So Christ returns. Every Christian who ever lived is raised from the dead, who, died, who lived and died, and all the Christians who are currently alive on planet Earth meet Christ in the air and return with him. Where are the Christians who are going to populate the Earth? Where are, there are no mortal Christians left. Now, the premillennialists might say, well, when Christ returns, uh, unbelievers will see that and become Christians. Well, the problem with that view is that all the passages that discuss the coming of Christ say that he judges them and casts them into the lake of fire. They're, they're judged. There is no millennium. There's no people to populate the earth. Number two. All unbelievers who are dead will be raised and together with any living unbelievers will be judged and destroyed by the Lord. They will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, Revelation 20, verse 15, and 21, verse 8, and will be punished with everlasting destruction, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. So the great passage of the rapture that they all depend on teaches Christ comes, the dead are raised first, those who are alive meet Christ in the air, and all unbelievers will be destroyed and cast into the lake of fire. Where are the people who are going to populate the earth and have children during the millennium? So there are no unbelievers left on earth to have children or rebel against Jesus at the end of the millennium. Number three, immediately, that's the word Paul uses, on that day, singular, 2 Thessalonians 1.10, on that day, singular, the day of the Lord, after the second coming, general resurrection, rapture, and final judgment, <coughs> The eternal state begins. 1 Corinthians 15, 23 to 25, and 50 to 54. And Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 54, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, if, the, if your view of the thousand-year reign after the second coming is true, Paul couldn't say that. He couldn't teach that. It would be irresponsible. And the apostle Peter totally agrees with Paul and teaches that on the day of the Lord, the current earth will be burned up, 2 Peter 3, 10 to 12, and will be replaced with a new heavens and a new earth, 2 Peter 3, 13, 
See Romans 8, 19 to 22 and Revelation 21, 4 to 5 and Revelation 22, 1 to 5. So you got to, not only did you have the resurrection of all men, whether saved or unsaved, not only did you have the final judgment on this day, but you have the creation of a new heaven and a new earth in which there is no sin, in which there is no death, in which there is no tears, which contradicts the idea of a thousand-year millennium where you've got saints, glorified saints, who are resurrected, who can't die, living next to mortal people who are sinning and dying. So the Gospels and Epistles speak with one voice. They teach the unity of the eschatological complex. Now, what do I mean by that? The second coming, the, and this is the bodily coming of Christ, the resurrection of the... I'm not talking about a coming in judgment, like on Jerusalem in AD 70. This is the bodily coming. And Jesus made it crystal clear, and, well, the angels who were accompanying Jesus at his ascension told the disciples right to their faces... Just as you saw him leave and ascend to heaven, that's how he's coming back. Bodily, in his resurrected body, and visible. Not a secret coming. The second coming, the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, the rapture of the living saints, the final judgment with its sentence, all occur on the same day. The day of the Lord. And here's the passages to look up later. Matthew 13, 47 to 50. Matthew 25, 31 to 34, also 41 and 46, John 5, 28 to 29, John 6, 3 to 40, and 44 and 54, Romans 2, 5 to 8 and 16, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 4, and 9 to 10, etc. So if you've got the Gospels and the Epistles, I didn't even go to the Old Testament, but you could go to Daniel, which says the same thing that teach that when Christ returns, that's the end of history, and that there's a resurrection of the dead and a final judgment, and everything is sorted out that day, uh, you ought to approach Revelation 20 in a more careful manner, and not to, not simply assume that it teaches the, pre, the premillennial view. In fact, Paul says, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 24, that when Jesus returns, he hands the kingdom over to the Father, but what does that mean? Although Jesus will always be the God-man forever, and I believe he'll retain his scars forever, okay, we're going to honor him forever for his redemptive work as the God-man, the theanthropic mediator, and he'll always be the head of the church, his role as mediator who saves the elect and intercedes for them at the right hand of God and protects them from evil is no longer necessary once salvation in history is completed. Okay, once you're in heaven and you have glorified bodies, you can't sin, you can't even be tempted. So do we need somebody interceding at God's right hand because of our sins? Because of the temptations? Because of entering into temptation? And the answer is no. He doesn't need to do that anymore. We can't sin anymore. That's what's great about what Christ did. Adam was sinless and perfect, but he had the ability to sin. When you get a glorified body, your nature is changed in such a way you can't sin. You won't even be tempted. <clears throat> With the forces of evil cast into the lake of fire, and the saints receiving glorified bodies that cannot be tempted or sin, the mediatorial, priestly, intercessory work of the Savior comes to an end. 
salvation in the fullest sense of the term is completed at the second coming. Yes, the foundation is the first coming. Yes, it's progressive in history as people are saved and sanctified. But once the whole body of the elect, the church, is saved and, and go to heaven and they're presented to God, his work of mediation no longer is necessary. Salvation is completed at the second coming. Jesus' role as the saving three anthropos and his kingdom building salvific work is completed in history. Consequently, the perfectly saved and glorified kingdom is handed over to the Father. This scriptural designation of the first person is this is the scriptural designation of the first person of the Trinity. He is the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, inasmuch as he is the God whom Christ came to reveal, whose work he performs, and he is the Father in virtue of the eternal relation subsisting between the first and second persons of the Godhead. I'll be very brief. Christ is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from both the Father and the Son. That's what the Bible says. Hard to, hard to understand, yes. Mysterious, yes. But absolutely true, the Bible teaches that we have to submit to it. So God, in the, in the uh, covenant of redemption before the creation of the world and the universe, God and the Son and the Holy Spirit had an agreement. Christ would go and assume a human nature and die on the cross for his people. The Holy, and he would achieve a perfect salvation. So he was sent by the Father, and if you, especially the Gospel of John, you read that, he's constantly concerned about, I, I came to do the work of my Father. I'm here to obey my Father perfectly. The Holy Spirit applies that work of perfect redemption throughout history to his people in regeneration, enlightening dead, dead minds uh, and, and dead hearts, uh, raising us up spiritually and drawing us to Christ and then sanctifying us. So you have that in history. But once everybody's saved, that work comes to an end. Everybody's saved. What Christ did is perfect, and now he hands it up to the Father. It was a gift to the Son, and now it's a gift back to the Father. The triune God of Scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will rule over the saints in the new perfected heavens and earth forever. In the saving process of mankind and the fallen cosmos, God always worked through the theanthropic mediator. Creation was mediated through Christ, and the recreation was mediated through Christ. But once death is finally, fully and finally conquered, the death of the, the reign of the mediator assumes a different role. For God has subjected all things under his feet, 1 Corinthians 15:27. Now, the point, this point for our study is that this explicitly contradicts the theory that Jesus returns to rule on earth where sin, death, and evil still dwells for 1,000 years. So once again, I'm emphasizing the eschatology, the doctrine of the end times of the Gospels and Epistles teaches one thing very clearly, the unity of the eschatological complex and then, of course, we have the final state. So when interpreting Scripture, if one encounters over a dozen clear passages in historical and didactic sections of the New Testament that contradict only one highly symbolic passage, Revelation is very symbolic, the one symbolic passage must be harmonized with the many explicit passages. 
Scripture obviously cannot contradict itself, for it is inspired by God, it is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, and it is infallible. Scripture cannot contradict itself, it cannot make mistakes. So we, we, we interpret Scripture according to the analogy of Scripture. You have to... Uh, you have a, a passage that may be symbolic, it may be more obscure, it may be harder to understand. You interpret in light of the many clear passages that talk about the same topic. Consequently, the clear passages must be used to shed light on the on and understand the unclear symbolic passages. And this point is strongly supported by the fact that premillennials not only generally ignore the many clear passages regarding what occurs when Jesus returns bodily from heaven, but they also introduced all sorts of purely human, speculative ideas regarding eschatology in an attempt to avoid the obvious contradictions. Okay, a supposed pre-tribulation rapture. That's not in the Bible at all. And if you go on reformedonline.com, read my book on the rapture. I forgot to look it up, but it was the rapture did the pre-tribulation rapture did not exist in the history of the church until I forget what, it's around the 1830s or 40s when a woman in a heretical brethren church prophesied it, and that was picked up by John Nelson Darby, the inventor of dispensationalism, and that started to be taught, and then it became very popular with the Schofield Bible. You've got different resurrections that occur at different times. You have separate secret comings, glorified resurrected saints living aside, alongside of sinful mortals. If we are to be faithful to the analogy of Scripture, bizarre speculations and Scripture twisting to fit unbiblical presuppositions is totally unnecessary. All the biblical accounts of the second coming render the idea of a secret rapture, by the way, impossible. The second coming is singular. The day of the Lord. That day. The final day. It's singular. Bodily, Acts 1, 9 to 11, and see Luke 24, 39. Public, not secret, public. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, with a shout, with a voice, with the trumpet of God. Does that sound like a secret rapture to you? With a voice, with a shout of an angel, a voice, the trumpet of God. That doesn't sound like a secret rapture to me. And the Lord Jesus is revealed. It is visible to the senses. Acts 1, 9-11. And connected to the general resurrection of the dead, both Christian and non-Christian. John 5, 28-29, 6, 39-40, Matthew 13, 30-40, 25, 31-41. So the doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture did not exist, like I said, until a woman made it up. She was a false prophetess, because there are no prophets after the death of the apostles in the 19th century. With all this in mind, we turn our attention to the binding of Satan in the millennium. And there are a number of important truths regarding uh, revealed in this passage. I had to go, I had to set the timing, otherwise you would totally not understand what's going on here. First, an angel comes down from heaven who has the key to the bottomless pit, a great chain and lays hold of the dragon, verses 1 and 2a. Some interpreters, some very good interpreters, believe that the angel is Christ himself. Just as they believe Michael, uh, who's normally an archangel, they believe Michael is Christ too. Um, <clears throat> and they do so because the victorious Savior holds the keys of death and hell in 118 
and in his incarnation he was sent as God's messenger, and that's the same word for angel. In addition, it is argued that only Jesus himself has the authority and power to arrest and bind the devil. That's the minority view, and this interpretation is not really necessary. For a heavenly angel is sent by the glorified Christ on a mission. When, a, when a, an angel, a holy angel, is sent by Christ on a mission, he gives that angel the authority and the power to carry out that mission. In chapter 12, Michael and the good angels cast out Satan and the demonic hosts. The keys in the chain belong to Christ, and they come from him. But in the book of Revelation, our Lord acts through his holy angels. Once again, the angels are in charge of the judgments, the trumpets and the bowls and all that. The angels are in charge of that. God, for some reason, Christ for some reason, likes to work immediately, not immediately, in these things. Now, sometimes he works immediately, but he likes to work through his holy angels. The image uh, of he laid hold of the dragon is that of a civil official or policeman making an arrest. Satan, you're under arrest. You're bound. The word chain in Greek, halusis, can refer to a metal chain or bond. Normally, when it's not symbolic literature, think of the metal chains and then they have the manacles or whatever you want to call them. They go around your wrists or your feet or your ankles. And what they would do in ancient prisons is, is uh, you, they would put you in a dungeon and then you would be chained either to the wall or to the floor. So you're not only behind a locked door, you can't, you can't even get up and walk around. That's the imagery. <clears throat> the chain is great because the devil is a powerful being. Because Satan is a spiritual being, the, the chain is obviously symbolic of a restraining power imposed by Christ on the devil. The strict limitation of Satan is indicated not simply by the chain with its manacles, but the bottomless pit is closed up and sealed above him, verse 3. So you got the chain, you got the locking of the door, and then you have a seal to make sure there is no unauthorized openings. Indicates total power over Satan by Christ. A finality of the devil's defeat and the incredible restriction of Satan's operation after the cross and empty tomb. And all this took place, as we have seen last week, at our Lord's first coming. When was Satan bound? When was Satan defeated? Definitively. He's obviously allowed to operate in some sense during history, but when, when, when did the defeat happen? It happened at the first coming of Christ, not the second coming. That's when the completion happens, but the, it happened at the first coming. And you can look this up later. I dealt with it last week, Matthew 12, 28 to 29, Luke 10, 18 to 19, John 12, 31 to 32, and Hebrews 2, 14. And the purpose, okay, so that's the binding. The purpose of the binding is noted in verse 3. So that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. This indicates that in spite of the powerful imagery of the devil's imprisonment, he is not totally restrained in the New Covenant era, but is restricted with regard to the spread of the gospel among the nations. <coughs> when did the gospel start to spread among the nations? When was Satan's house plundered? After the, right after the resurrection. Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts. 
the pagan Roman Empire became Christian Europe. Russia was converted. What is now Turkey was converted. The whole Middle East and North Africa was converted. Now, they're not Christian now because of apostasy. But all these areas were Christian at one time. Remember, and this is critical, his restriction coincides with the resurrection and glorification of Christ, Matthew 28, 18-20. His restriction makes the spread of the gospel possible. Christ now rules over the nations, Psalm 2, 8 and following, Psalm 110, Revelation 12, 15, excuse me, Revelation 12, 5 and 19, 15 to 16. And his people have great power if they faithfully preach the gospel and proclaim the whole word of God to the nations. The gospel, the true gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1.16 The whole counsel of God taught, sanctifies individuals, and over time, and this is the goal of the Great Commission, whole nations. Kings, queens, and civil leaders, we are told in prophecy, will bow the knee to Christ and will pay respect unto the Lord's church. Isaiah 49, 23. Now remember, before the coming of Christ, Satan had complete possession of the whole earth other than this tiny sliver of land in Israel. That's it. Tiny little nation. I don't know what size is it. Size of Delaware or something. It's really small. And um, Satan, the paganism reigned everywhere. Child sacrifice. The worship of idols and false gods reigned everywhere. The thousands of years of rank heathenism, human sacrifice, and idolatry, demon worship, will come to an end. This amazing transformation did occur to a large extent in the Roman Empire, North Africa, the Middle East, Turkey, Europe, and the British Isles, Russia, and the Americas. Some of this victory was imperfect, obviously, due to, the, to Romanism's great heirs, and many of these areas uh, have been lost due to apostasy. But the world has already been radically transformed due to the gospel and the word of God. And it's interesting. Those areas of North Africa and the Middle East that apostatized and held to Arianism, which is like Jehovah's Witnesses, they denied the divinity of Christ, it became extremely popular in much of Turkey and, and the Middle East and in North Africa. Those are precisely the areas that were conquered by Islam, which is Unitarian, which is a cult. So it's a cult. They deny that Christ is God. They deny the Trinity. And they also uh, deny the gospel. They don't believe Jesus died on the cross. They believe he slipped away and Judas was crucified. So they deny the gospel. They de deny the true definition of God, the triune God of Scripture. And in the Dome of the Rock, which stands where the temple used to stand, there's a big giant letters on the, on, in, if you go inside, that says God is one, he doesn't have a son. It says it right in there. God is one, it's Unitarianism, he doesn't have a son. Yeah, God is one, but he's a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible's crystal clear about that. And if you deny the Trinity, you can't be a Christian. If you deny the divinity of Christ, you can't be a Christian. So God judged them for their apostasy.
verse 3 says he was cast into the bottomless pit and is shut up and a seal is set on him. The bottomless pit or the abyss or the pit of the abyss, Revelation 9.2, is used in Revelation to describe hell, which is a temporary prison. And in chapter 20, it's called a prison. It's Satan's prison. Hell is a prison. And I didn't look it up, but there's a really interesting passage in Isaiah. It's in my, I have a little booklet on hell, which talks about people being cast into the, the pit. And, to, and it, it talks about side compartments in the pit. It's a prison. So it's a temporary prison for Satan, the demons, and unbelievers until the second coming when all of God's enemies are cast in the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 14 to 15, and 21, 8. In Jude 9, we read that the fallen angels are reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. <clears throat> but in Revelation 9, 2, and following, an army of demons are led out to torment men for a temporary period of time, five months. They're led out of the pit. And in Revelation 20, Satan will be led out of the pit after a period of time. Therefore, we can deduce that the devils and the demons' imprisonment in hell between Christ's resurrection and the second coming and final judgment is not absolute. Okay, that explains why even though Christ, in a sense, is conquering the nations with the gospel, which is what he taught, there's still satanic activity and there's still lots of bad things happening, I mean, like our election, where the American people voted for Satanism and they voted for child murder. They voted for state theft and statism. They voted for that. That's what they want. Now, certainly part of the problem is Trump's acting like a, an idiot um, and not helping, but they, the, the real core of the problem is that they follow Satan. <clears throat> Satan and demonic activity is restricted but it still occurs in individuals and nations. The gospel, however, cannot be stopped. The mustard seed will grow into a great tree. And I forgot to write it down. I think it's Matthew 13. Toward the end of this new covenant era, Satan and his hosts will be led out for a short time to wreak havoc on the earth and attempt to destroy the church. Revelation 27 and 9. But the church will be delivered by Christ, verses 9 and 10. Now, if Satan is a defeated, imprisoned foe, why is the current state of affairs in the world such a mess? And this is why I can understand why people like amillennialism. <laughs> uh, if you're a, a post-millennialist, then you have to believe we're going to be around a long time because there has to be a great revival throughout the earth for those passages in Isaiah and other passages in the Psalms to be taken literally which talk about total victory. But that's for another day. <clears throat> Why is there so much evil in the world? If nations are becoming more wicked and rebellious, it is not because Jesus is powerless or because Satan still dominates as he did before Christ. It is because Christians have rebelled and even apostatized. Look, for example, at Revelation 2, 18-19, which is regarding the church of Thyatira. God works through secondary agencies in this world. His angels and his church. And of course we see that the demons 
are allowed to be used for judgment. So it's not God's fault, it's not Christ's fault when churches backslide and hand society over to the devil's followers, is it? We don't blame Christ for that. Modernists deny the inspiration and authority of Scripture, and therefore they're secular humanists masquerading as Christians, and they're on the same side as Biden and the abortionists. Abortion, it is so evil. It is 65 million, over 65 million, a million a year still. They're babies. They're innocent. They haven't committed any crime, and they're being ripped apart and cut into little pieces and thrown in dumpsters. That is extremely wicked. While so-called conservatives and fundamentalists often, especially the fundamentalists of the 1920s and 30s who were dispensationalists, deny Christ's present and relevant kingship over the nations. He's not really going to be king until the second coming. So don't polish brash on a sinking ship. Don't try to have a Christian culture. Don't, and there's a lot of negative amillennialists that, that act this way too. The, the better, more positive amillennialists will say, yeah, the Great Commission clearly teaches that our goal as Christians is to disciple whole nations, where whole nations adopt the law of God, the moral law of God, where whole nations bow the knee to Christ, where we have Christian laws, where we have Christian ethics, where you have Christian courts, Christian government, civil government. That's the goal of the Great Commission. That's obvious. Only negative amillennialists deny that and say, oh, no, no, our job is to... The kingdom is strictly the church. It doesn't apply to anything outside the church. And don't try to polish brash on a sinking ship. That's, for example, um, the Protestant Reformed Church. Their views of eschatology are just as bad as premillennial dispensationalism. They are. It's the most negative, unbiblical form of amillennialism you'll ever see. <clears throat> Evangelicals often, very often, speak about Yahweh's present and relevant kingship over the nations, uh, his moral laws as if they were evil and must be replaced, must be rejected by civil magistrates. The law is evil for an old covenant. We're talking about the moral law. We're not talking about ceremonial laws. They teach that the law of God is evil. It, it's for a former dispensation. And, and, and you wonder, well, why are so many prominent megachurch evangelical pastors soft on homosexuality? Why are they soft on such obvious, gross violations of God's law? Why? The answer is they don't believe in the law of God. They don't. So they, they, they follow the culture. The consequences of unbelief, antinomianism, and heresy are plain to see in American culture and society. But Jesus Christ must not be blamed for the church's cultural surrender and rampant antinomianism. I can, I can introduce you to evangelicals who, if they had a choice to vote for the Apostle Paul or, let's say, Moses or some semi-conservative atheist, they would vote for the atheist because they believe religion should be out, Christianity should have nothing to do with our political system. We have separation of church and state. So they'll actually side with the secular humanist against Christ because their eschatology is so messed up and false. But don't fall for that. Our job is to make sure that people like Biden are, should be in jail. They shouldn't be president. And people who have abortion, the doctor should be put to death. The nurse should be put to death. The receptionist should be put to death. Abortion should be illegal, and it should be a death penalty offense. Homosexuality should be illegal. 
And if they're caught in the act and prosecuted, it's a death penalty offense. And adultery should be a death penalty offense if the victim so orders it. That's one thing where there's some leeway. But there's not leeway with bestiality and homosexuality and cross-dressing. There's no leeway. God has spoken. Thus saith the Lord, submit to it or admit, well, I'm on this issue, I'm on Satan's side. I'm not on, God, I'm not on God's side. We'll take a little break. We'll take a little break. We'll come back. Like I said, some of this victory is imperfect due to Romanism's great errors and because of apostasy. But think of how much the, the Word of God and the Gospel has transformed this world already, even though it's not completed. In the Roman Empire, slavery was widespread, and it was a brutal form of slavery. Uh, people were branded on their faces. Women were treated like cattle. It was, a, it was a culture of theft and domination of other peoples. It was totally wicked. And Christianity has transformed our world. But we'll come back. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his victory over the Satan at the cross and empty tomb. That Christ has locked him up. He's made the arrest and locked him up. Cause us, Lord, to believe in your word, to trust in it, and to obey it. And not... Surrender culture and society to the devil. We're paying the price for that. We're paying the price for that, Lord. Because if people aren't Christian, if they're not following your dear son, then who are they following? The devil. We're ruled over by sodomites and feminists and wicked atheists and people who are practical atheists, Lord, because we as churches have not done our job, especially during the 20th century and even currently. So help us, Lord. Help us. Christ is King. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.